something about a courtroom drama that will draw us in, right? Maybe you're not even planning on really watching anything on TV and you're flipping around and you get to a show that actually has some kind of courtroom drama scene. And maybe that's not a big deal for you, but that just seems to always kind of draw me in. There's this intrigue about a courtroom scene. You've got, usually there's some kind of reality basis for that, even if it's a fictional movie or a TV show, that it's based a lot of times in something that has actually happened, right? And so that's playing in there. And actually we have a lot of, quote, real court TV. I remember back in the day growing up, the People's Court. Anybody remember that show, Judge Wapner? Yeah, you gotta be a little older to remember that one. Now it's, I guess, Judge Judy and some other ones. But uh, regardless, we get drawn in because of, of this tension, I think, between right and wrong, good and evil, and we're always hoping that the verdict is what needs to be passed down, right? And have you ever gotten caught up in one of those courtroom dramas, and, and the person that you really thought should have been convicted, that they seemed guilty, but they don't, they're not convicted, they're declared innocent. Or maybe it's the other way around, maybe you really think of them as innocent, and they end up being declared guilty. How does that make you feel when it goes the way you think it shouldn't go? Well... We're going to be looking at one of the most amazing courtroom drama scenes today, real courtroom drama scenes today. We're going to continue in our study of the Gospel of John, and we're going to be picking up where we left off last week, right in the middle of this courtroom scene between Pilate, Jesus, and the Jewish leaders. Those are our three main characters. And we've already seen Jesus has appeared before the religious leaders in their own system, right, with Annas and then Caiaphas and the whole uh, Sanhedrin. But now they have taken Jesus, and remember last week we heard that, that Jesus, uh, that Pilate, t- uh, Pilate was awakened probably way earlier than he wanted to be, woke up, because the religious leaders had Jesus in arms, and they wanted a Roman court to take place and to convict Jesus. In fact, they didn't even want to mess with some of the, the preliminaries, like, well, you don't even need to cross-examine him. What charges? Don't worry about that. He's guilty. Let's crucify him. Fortunately, Pilate at least said, okay, let's, let's listen to his story. Somewhere early on in that trial scene, uh, one of the other gospel writers records that Pilate, realizing that Jesus was a Galilean, thought, hey, here's a way I can uh, maybe get this problem to go away from me. And so he sends him off to Herod Antipas. And Herod receives Jesus. Once he's heard of Jesus, wants Jesus to perform some of his miracles for him, asks Jesus a bunch of questions. Jesus says nothing. Herod gets kind of tired of Jesus, sends him back to Pilate. And this is probably about where we pick up our text today. Not sure, we don't know exactly when that part, that little sidebar, but we're gonna see this last part of Jesus' trial with Pilate, a courtroom scene. And John is very detailed, very, this historical narrative. And I believe as we study this today, as we look at this, it's gonna help prepare us even better for the passage we look at next week at the crucifixion of Jesus. But I also really believe that there are some wonderful truths, some wonderful application for us today as we walk through the passage. Now, I've divided it into three sections, and we're not going to read the whole passage in one sitting. We're going to break it up into those three sections, and I'll read the passage each time we get to a new section. The first section, Roman numeral one, I find no guilt in him. You're going to hear that phrase by Pilate three times. Three times he's going to say that. So we pick up in actually in chapter 18, verse 38. And the last thing that we looked at last week was when Pilate said to Jesus, what is truth? After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. Remember, 
The Jews would not come inside, so Pilate had to kind of go back and forth. So he had been inside with Jesus, and now he's gone back out. Verse 39, but you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? And they cried out, cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. Verse one of chapter 19, and Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, hail, king of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, see, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. Number two. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, and Pilate said to them, behold the man. And when the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, crucify him, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, take him yourself and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. Now, Pilate's been trying to, 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 to get rid of this problem. He's been trying his very best to make this whole thing go away. He does not need another major incident, another major uprising, uh, a riot, a mob scene. He, he can't afford that. He's already on thin ice. Pilate has not had the perfect record as the governor of Judea. Let's put it that way. In fact, there were many incidents leading up to this point that Pilate had had run-ins with the Jews. He was not liked by them, and he did not like them either. I'm going to give you just one example. Early on, right after he had been appointed governor of Judea, he thought it would be a good idea to put the Roman standard with an image of Caesar in Jerusalem. The two previous governors, at least the two previous governors before Pilate, had realized that might not be such a good thing because the Jews would see that as a graven image, as idolatrous, and they would not, that, would be, that would go against their religion. So the two previous governors of Judea withheld from putting those standard Roman standards in Jerusalem. Pilate thought, huh, every other city has them. Why doesn't Jerusalem? So while it was dark during the night, he brought the Roman standards into Jerusalem. The Jews wake up the next morning. Are they happy with this? No, not at all. In fact, they are so upset that this has been brought into their city, their holy city, that a huge contingency of them gather together and they head to Caesarea, which is where Pilate was. That's where his main headquarters was. That's where his palace was. So they head to see Pilate. Pilate refuses to see them, but they are not giving it up that easy. They camp out for five days outside of Pilate's house, demanding to see Pilate. Finally, on the fifth day, Pilate tells them, okay, gather them in the local amphitheater. I'll listen to them. Well, his plan all along was not to listen. He gathers them in that local amphitheater, has them surrounded by Roman soldiers, and he basically tells them, nope, the standards are staying. I don't care what you say. And if you want to keep on persisting in this, then uh, see all these guards around, all these soldiers, they're now going to pull their swords and get ready if you're going to continue to persist. Otherwise, you guys need to go home to Jerusalem. So they pulled their swords. Josephus, the Jewish historian, tells us that at that moment, many of the Jews fell to the ground and pulled down their clothing to expose their neck. In other words, go ahead, slit my throat if that's the way it's going to be. We don't want those standards in Jerusalem. Well, Pilate was caught off guard by this. He's like, what? I can't believe they're doing this. I can't kill all of these people. This won't look good in my early tenure as governor. And so Pilate backs down, backs away, completely pulls out the Roman standards with the images of Caesar on them. And that's how he started off 
his governorship in Judea. And it just get worse and worse. So he, he put the pagan image on their coin. I mean, just all he stole from their, their treasury to build aqueducts. I mean, the list goes on and on. So by the time we get to this point, there is no love lost between Pilate and the Jews, especially the Jewish leaders. So he's doing everything he can to get out of this problem. We saw last week, he, tried, he told the Jewish leaders, go, ju- go judge this yourself. And they said, no, 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 you, you, the Romans need to do this. So uh, his next plan was to send him off to Herod. We mentioned that a moment ago. That failed as well because Herod sent him right back. And so the, the third plan here we see in, in the last part of verse, uh, or chapter 18, we see that he, he is going to honor the customary release of a, Jew, uh, of a prisoner uh, on Passover. And that was something that many of the governors had done. And so he goes, I'll do that. And one of the other gospel writers tells us that he only, he gave him a choice between two people, Barabbas and Jesus. Now, Barabbas is mentioned in here as being a robber there at the end of verse 40. But we also learn over in Luke's gospel that he was an insurrectionist. He was a murderer. I mean, he was a hardened criminal. And so Pilate's thought is, of course, they'll say release Jesus. We don't want this, this, this major criminal back out on the streets. But as we just read a moment ago, they cried out, not this man, but Barabbas. We want Barabbas to be released. So that plan failed. So his next strategy we see in chapter 19, verse 1, is to have Jesus flogged, to have Jesus severely, brutally punished. Most of you in this room understand what what was meant when we say Jesus was flogged, right? That this was not just some, let's uh, let's slap him on the back of of the wrist. No, this was a brutal affliction. And this was done prior to crucifixion, but it was also done for other serious crimes as well. And we don't know for sure whether this was one of two floggings that Jesus had or was there just this one. It's kind of hard to really harmonize the gospels at that point, but it really doesn't matter. The fact is that Pilate, knowing that Jesus was innocent, declaring it three times, still had him brutally beaten, where, his, where the, literally the flesh would have been ripped off his back. And then after that, the, the soldiers had their fun with Jesus and they mocked him. They put a put a, a crown of thorns that they had made, press it on his, on his skull so it pierced the skin into the, into the flesh and into the bone and the pain and the blood dripping down. And then they put a purple robe on him and began mocking, hail the king of the Jews. And, and, and John also tells us they begin to hit him with their hands, ridiculing him, abusing him. And when all this is over, Pilate now thinks this is his plan. I can bring this pathetic prisoner out that's beaten, that's bloody, that's disfigured. And at that point, they'll realize, okay, he's been punished enough and they'll acquiesce to Pilate wanting to release the prisoner. Pilate underestimated their bloodthirstiness for Jesus. And so we read as, they, as he brings him out and he says, I find no guilt in him again. Behold the man. What is the leaders in verse uh, six? Crucify him, crucify him crucify him. And then the last part of verse six, we see Pilate's frustration. He says, take him yourself and crucify him for I find no guilt in him. Again, no guilt in him. We'll find out how they respond to that in just a minute, but let's look at a few takeaways here. Letter A, Pilate's predicament. Pilate's predicament. He was in this predicament. He was either going to protect his position or he was going to provide justice to Jesus. What was he going to do? Protect his position as the governor which was, like I mentioned a moment ago, he was, he was skating on pretty thin ice as it related to Rome and, and the emperor Tiberius. Or was he going to provide justice for Jesus? We compromise the truth often as well. We, like Pilate, tend to vacillate between the truth we know, especially the ultimate truth of God's word, and maybe willing to compromise 
that truth for the sake of cultural acceptance or prestige or power or position ourselves. We also have that same tendency to vacillate back and forth between the truth. At the top of your outline, I put this, the big idea. Everybody has a king. Everybody has a king, something or someone that's ruling over your life. Pilate's king was his position. Pilate's king was his position. He cared more about his position than probably anything else. And right now, his position was being seriously threatened by the Jewish leaders, which leads to letter B, the Jewish leaders. They were not much better, or really not any better. They were blinded by sin and determined to eliminate their Jesus problem. For months now, they had seen the ministry of Jesus and they'd been watching and they'd been investigating and they'd been sending out people to watch and be very careful. They had a file on Jesus by this time that was probably pretty thick. And they were realizing that he was definitely a threat to their own ministry, to their own position, their own power, their own authority. And so as they got more and more concerned, they realized that this person, this problem had to go away, just had to go away. And it was their sin that blinded them to the truth of who Jesus really was. Because you think, well, shouldn't they of all people that knew, knew the scriptures better than, quote, anybody else be able to see that this was the promised Messiah King, the Christ? Shouldn't they have been able to see that? And we all say, well, yeah, they should have. But again, sin blinds us to the truth. And, and while we can be critical of them and say they should have seen this was Jesus the Messiah King, we miss the truth all the time as well because of sin in our own lives. Everybody has a king. The Jewish leaders had a king, but at this time, it doesn't appear to be God any longer. They too are protecting their position at any cost. And we get to the most important point under, under Roman number one is letter C, Jesus was sinless. Now, Pilate had already declared him innocent, but it goes much further than Jesus just being innocent. He was, in fact, sinless. He was perfect. He was without any sin. I know that's hard for us to imagine anyone being without sin, right? Because we are sinful beings. We constantly struggle with our own sin nature. I know, I do. Every day, every moment, it seems that I struggle with that sin nature. But yet, Jesus was sinless. He was perfect. And this is very important theologically. That Jesus was not just a good person, as a lot of people like to say. No, he was the God-man who would lay down his life as the substitutionary sacrifice for our sin. He was the sinless, perfect sacrifice. No other person could do that because everybody else is a sinner. It had to be a spotless lamb. Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, makes it very plain. This is probably one of the most quoted verses from this pulpit, but it fits very well here as well. And Paul says this, for our sake, he made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin. Notice that, who knew no sin. Jesus was sinless. It had to be that way. He was sinless, but he took on our sin. Why? So that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. First Peter 2.24, Peter also presents Jesus as that substitutionary atonement for our sin when he says, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. 
You see, this is precisely what Jesus is just hours away from doing on the cross, paying the penalty for the sins of those who will repent and put their faith and trust in him as their Lord and Savior, in him alone. That's the heart of the gospel message, amen, of what Jesus has done for us on the cross, paying the price that we could never pay. Let's move on to our next section. Roman numeral two, we have a law. So how did the Jewish leaders respond to Jesus, or to Pilate's offer to take Jesus and crucify him? Beginning in verse seven, the Jews answered him, we have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, where are you from? Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? And Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. So see, here we see the Jewish leaders going on the offensive. And maybe because they have heard Pilate now say three times, I find no guilt in him, but still he's not been released. So they're thinking he must be getting weaker. And so now they go on the offense and they change their charge. You know, in fact, the, just to respond to what Pilate had said at the end, he said, I find no guilt in him. You go crucify him. They could not crucify anybody. Now they could have stoned somebody to death with Pilate's permission, but they did not want to do that. In fact, that, first of all, that would not have fulfilled Jesus' own prophecy about his death, right? But secondly, the main reason for the Jews at least is they didn't want to have to mess with that. They wanted it to be a nice, tidy murder with the Romans being the ones to blame, not them. So they pushed. And now they move from their first charge of treason to now their charge of blasphemy. Up to this point, it had been Jesus is a threat to, to Rome. But now they say, now they get to the heart of the matter. No, he's a threat to us. He's a threat to our own Jewish religion. He's a threat in that way. So they went from treason to a charge of blasphemy when they say we have a law. And that law says this man ought to die because he claims to be the son of God. Now, where is that law? Well, they probably are referring to Leviticus chapter 24, verse 16. And I'll put that on the screen. Whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. This most likely is exactly what they are referring to. Now, when Pilate hears this, that the claim that Jesus had was that he was the son of God. John tells us that Pilate was even, in verse eight, was even more afraid. Meaning he was already a little, uh, he was already afraid of this whole situation. But now he was even more afraid. So why was Pilate even more afraid? Well, a few things. Probably by now he's received the message from his wife. Some of you might recall that message from in one of the other gospel accounts where he receives a message that she has had these dreams about this man named Jesus all day. And she warns Pilate, she says, have nothing to do with this righteous man. So he's received that, that message from his wife, have nothing to do with him. And now he hears the claim that he is the son of God. And Pilate, like many Romans, would have been very superstitious. And to hear that, that, that Jesus perhaps was a deity and he had just flogged Jesus. Now he's thinking, oh my goodness, I, there might be retribution coming on me now. I've just flogged a, a God. And so he's, he's, he immediately brings Jesus back inside to question him some more. And the first thing he asks is he says, 
Where are you from there in verse nine? Where are you from? Now he's not asking where he's from earthly speaking here because he knows he's from Galilee, right? He's asking is, you know, are you from another realm, Jesus? Are, they, are these claims true? Now, Jesus doesn't answer him and that makes Pilate very mad, but probably the reason Jesus doesn't answer him is if you look at our passage from last week, Jesus has already told him that his kingdom is of another world, right? He's already basically told him all this. But Jesus says nothing and Pilate doesn't like it at all. And you see there in verse 10, Pilate says to him, you will not speak to me? I can just hear Pilate saying, don't you know who I am? Don't you know that I hold your life in my hands that I can have you crucified? I have the power to release you. I have the power to take your life. Jesus, work with me on this. I wanna help you. I wanna get you released, but you're not helping me at all. And I don't think you understand the power and authority that I have. And Jesus responds, and this is the only time Jesus speaks in our passage that we're looking at today. In verse 11, Jesus answered him and said, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. Jesus makes it very clear where any authority that Pilate has, where it has come from. And it's not in and of himself. Pilate doesn't have any authority of himself. It's all coming from above, from God. God is the one that is ultimately in control. Letter A, Jesus challenges Pilate with the truth about his authority. And this truth challenges us as well. We love to think we have authority over our own lives, right? That we get to make all the decisions. And yes, we are moral agents that have been given the ability to make decisions, but we think we're in control with all our decisions of where we're gonna go and what we're gonna do and what we're gonna say and who we're gonna hang out with and what we're gonna eat. But we need to be reminded over and over and over again that God is sovereign and ultimately God is in control. In every detail and circumstance of our lives, God is still in control. And he was in control in this moment. And by the way, for those of you in the room that struggle with this whole control issue a little bit, you like to be in control and when you feel it slipping away from you, you begin to panic a little bit. You know who you are, the control freaks. Yep, yep. Every, every group has at least one or two, and uh, this is a large multi-group, so there's probably quite a few of you in the room. Here's, here's what I have to say quite often and remind myself, I am not in control. Say that with me. I am not in control. And for some of you that are control freaks, you need to say it about 20 more times just under your breath real quietly. Just keep saying that and reminding yourself, I am not in control. Letter B, Jesus trusted himself to the Father in heaven, and this is where he was able to bear what he bared as he went through this trial, the flogging, and ultimately the crucifixion and taking on the sins of the world and the judgment and wrath of God, the, his heavenly father. That ultimately God is in control. And if God is in control, the heavenly father's in control, Jesus is, I can trust him. I can trust him. And some of you, when you go through difficult circumstances, the first thing you do is try to figure it out yourself and say, instead of saying, turning to God, saying, okay, God, I know you got this and I, I wish I did, but I know I don't, but I'm gonna trust you in this. Whether it's the loss of a loved one, whether it's uh, the loss of a job, whether it's a, a diagnosis that you don't wanna hear, ultimately we can get comfort trusting in God, our heavenly father, that he is in control, that he is sovereign, that he is watching and working in every moment of our lives. The last section, behold your king, Roman numeral three, behold your king. John does not tell us how 
Pilate responded to Jesus' words in verse 11. But the next thing we know is we see Pilate back at it again, trying to figure out a way to release Jesus. Look at verse 12. From then on, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out, sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement in an Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, behold your king. And they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. And so he delivered him over to them to be crucified. Now we're not told what Pilate did now to try to release Jesus, but we're just told, John tells us that he was trying something to release Jesus, to get rid of, to stop this from getting any worse than it already was. But obviously whatever he was doing was not able to convince the Jews that he needed to be released. So we, be, we come to the part in the passage where I think it's a critical part of the trial where I, I'm calling this Pilate's flip, Pilate's flip. Because remember his predicament, protect his position or give the actual judge, uh, justice that needed to be given to Jesus. Protect his position or give out the justice that needed to be given out. And so he's feeling the pressure to protect his position. And we read in verse 12, it says, after he had sought to release him, the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. The Jews had saved their strongest card to play last. Here they insinuate that Pilate could not afford to displease the emperor one more time. And their threat's pretty clear. If you release Jesus, you're no friend of Caesar. And oh, by the way, Pilate, we'll make sure that Caesar hears about your disloyalty. That's kind of what's being insinuated very clearly through this challenge when they say, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. And it appears that as soon as they say this, Pilate realizes he's done. There's nothing more he can do. There's no more tricks. There's no more politician tricks he can pull. He's, he's, at, a, he's at the end. The only thing he can do now is have Jesus' sentence turned over to be crucified. At least that's the way he feels because he's protecting his position. But it wasn't just Pilate that flips because we also see the Jews flipping as well. Pilate tries to get a few last minute digs in and in the end of verse 14, as he presents, or he presents Jesus and getting ready for the, the judgment, he says, behold your king. Again, they would have not liked Jesus being called their king. And they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? One more last second dig that he can get into those that have been extorting him, blackmailing him to sentence Jesus to death. But what the Jews say here is what I'm talking about when I say the Jews have their flip. Because they respond with one of the most hypocritical, blasphemous things a Jew could ever say when they say in verse 15, we have no king but Caesar. We have no king but Caesar. Talk about a flip. They have just demanded the death of the promised Messiah king in exchange for their allegiance to the Roman emperor Caesar. Wow. I mean, this, this changed everything. I mean, what happened to the commandment, have no other gods before me? 
And yet here they are willing to declare their allegiance to Caesar. That's how much they wanted Jesus dead. They were willing to compromise everything. They were blinded by the truth and they were by their sin and they were willing to compromise any truth they did know for the sake of getting rid of Jesus. Letter A, Pilate, let's look at him first. Pilate is a moral coward. He's fearing the crowd more than anything else, especially more than God. He was weak, he was superficial, he was hungry for celebrity status, a desire for wealth, for power, and he trades the soul thinking he's gonna gain the world, but he ends up losing that as well because tradition tells us that it wasn't long after this, another complaint made it to Rome. He was called to Rome, never heard of again. Never heard of again. So he traded his very soul for nothing. Letter B, in an ultimate act of blasphemy, the Jewish leaders reject the true Messiah king for Caesar as their king. The soul of the nation died that day. The body 40 years later with the fall of Jerusalem, but the soul of the nation of Israel died that day when their leaders cried out, we have no king but Caesar, which leads to perhaps the most important part of this section. Letter C, Jesus is king. Pilate did not recognize the Messiah, Jesus as the Messiah king. The Jewish leaders did not recognize Jesus as the Messiah king. The, most of the crowd did not recognize Jesus as the Messiah king. They were all blinded by their sin and they chose to follow the world. But here's the deal. Just like Pilate, just like Pilate, we must all choose between Jesus or the world. We must all choose between Jesus or the world. Remember, everybody has a king. Something or someone that's ruling over you. Who is your king? Who is your king? Now, I want to continue the courtroom scene for just a minute, but it's a different courtroom because as sinners ourselves, as we mentioned earlier, we're all sinners. Jesus is the only one that's without sin. We're all sinners. And one day, as sinners, we will stand before God's judgment seat. But for those in Christ, Jesus comes to that judgment as our representative to face our charges and to stand in our place. He is condemned for us. He is our representative for us. Amen? Amen. What a great promise that we see throughout Scripture. That for those of us in Christ, Jesus himself, that substitutionary sacrifice, will take on the penalty, the payment, the wrath of God, the judgment of God that we so deserve so that we, in fact, will be free. Wow. I hope and pray that you're here today and that you have chosen Jesus. But, Jesus, but if you're outside of Christ today, my prayer for you is that you would understand your need for a Savior, that you are a sinner in desperate need of a Savior, and Jesus, what he has done for you. And what we'll look at next week in his substitutionary, sacrificial death on the cross for you and your sin that you would, the blinders perhaps maybe come off for the very first time and have a deep desire to turn from your sin and turn to Jesus Christ. That connect card I mentioned earlier can also be used to start a conversation about eternity with one of the ministers here on our staff, and we would love to do that. You can fill that out and say, I just want to talk with someone about Jesus. I want to talk with someone about eternity. But the question is for all of us, who is your king? And if you are a born-again believer in Jesus Christ, you're, you have made that decision, but it's a day-to-day -day decision that you will submit to the kingship of Jesus Christ in your life. Because you're going to be challenged to compromise the truth every day. Our culture is becoming more and more anti this book, right? It's getting battled. It's getting challenged every single day. And to be a Christian is going to be 
saying, I'm willing to take a stand for the truth no matter what it costs me. In fact, I'm gonna talk a little bit more about what that cost might be and how we can take a stand for the truth in Beyond the Notes this week. But I'll leave you with this, who is your king? <laughs>